Welcome to Local and Thriving. I am your friendly neighborhood host, Bree Crow, and you're tuning in to season two of the show where we're highlighting the Dallas community. I'm passionate about empowering an inclusive economy, and it all starts locally, right? These are the conversations with people you need to know, sharing stories to learn from, and talking about resources to leverage. Check out more about the show at localandthriving.com. Find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. And hey, while you're listening, go plug in to our private Facebook group. You can find me on social at recrow.co. I'd love to hear from you, but I won't keep you waiting. Well, let's get into it. You are now tuning in to the final bonus episode for season two of Local and Thriving. And we have a special guest. Today, I spoke with Ben Hubbard, who's the CEO of Nexus PMG, their fellow Addison-based business, which makes me that much more happy. We talked about building trust with investors, business opportunities within the environmental, social, and governance industry, the types of projects they're involved in, and the trends that they've seen arise from COVID times. Ben is a fellow Red Raider, Reckham Tech. He got his MBA from the University of Massachusetts, and he also serves as an investment committee member of Nexus Dev, a development capital provider to renewable and circular economy assets. All right, folks, we are here with Ben Hubbard, and he is the CEO of Nexus PMG. And honestly, I don't think we got to talk about this. I didn't realize that you got your mechanical engineering degree from Texas Tech, so Reckham. <laughs> Fellow alum, I really enjoyed my time in Lubbock. I think it's one of those places that it is what you make it. Like you could absolutely have a terrible time living in Lubbock or it could be a really great time. That's right. <laughs> so I loved living there. Um, but you started Nexus PMG in 2013. And that's really uh, circumventing a lot of the different experiences that you had before that. So I definitely would love to hear about that. But when you did start it in 2013, that was really leveraging your career in investment underwriting and bridging the gap between project development and project finance. And you've got a lot of experience managing domestic and international high profile projects. And I can definitely say that's true because after doing some research about what you've been involved in, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also besides just Nexus PMG, what was really exciting to see is that y'all launched the, a big new initiative in February of this year called Nexus Dev, which is a $20 million investment vehicle to really double down from what I understand, your dedication to reducing carbon intensity and enhancing resource uh, resource efficiency. And that's really what I was excited to, to talk with you about, because I think we we hear a lot in the, the news and the media about what about climate change, about clean tech and about how we can be more sustainable. But like who's doing the work, like yeah. what's actually being done? Um, so, you know, that was kind of my quick overview. But, you know, I'd love to hear just about how things got started for you. W why are you passionate about what you do today and, you know, your experiences that have led to that? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And um, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to, to chat with you. So my story kind of is a wild journey that goes all sorts of paths and windy paths and down different directions and hallways that ended up getting me where I am today. But the the kind of starting point was actually myself and, and some of my good colleagues that are my co-founders of Nexus PMG sitting in a man camp in Saudi Arabia in the middle of the desert. 
Uh, and we're sitting there um, as, you know, fairly senior folks on a north of $10 billion project. So this thing is absolutely monstrous in nature, over 50,000 craft working on various different components. I mean, this thing was insane. Had its own little town, city, grocery stores. I mean, it was wild. So we're sitting there, we're working on this project. We're doing a lot of things that we do to manage construction and oversee contractors and analyzing schedules and the cost and where, how much is this thing going to cost at the end and trying to forecast, you know, the different, you know, areas of variations and all these things. And we're getting closer and closer on that project to the money people, the funders, because we're doing a lot of the financial reporting and, and measurements and kind of interesting things. And we start realizing, huh, there's an interesting way that we can create to package up this information, to articulate this to the investment community a little differently than maybe people have seen it before. And that was like literally the seed that kind of started planting the idea behind Nexus PMG is, you know, maybe we can start thinking through um, through how to like, you know, support the investment community a little bit differently in their assessment of risk before they invest in these projects, right? And so, um, you know, 2013 comes, the project's coming to an end. We've been in the desert for almost three years. So I was also ready to just go back to America and just be around my family and friends after being overseas for a long time. And so we started Nexus PMG. It originally was birthed as an advisory firm. And today it still has a very large presence in the advisory capacity. Um, and we through some luck and through some uh, desire, we started working on just some of the really odd green infrastructure projects. Things like, um, you know, converting different waste streams into high protein insects for animal feeds and, you know, converting really random sources of biomass into biofuels and different types of algae and energy sources. And slowly but surely we kind of became the, hey, if you got a weird project, let's go to Nexus PMG because they do the weird projects. Well, Fast forward seven years and weird projects are actually pretty much all projects now because we've had such a momentous movement in the ESG sector and sustainable infrastructure sector. Funds are pouring money into these sectors. And so we've over the years become more of a, um, a hybrid advisory, development, operations and engineering firms specifically for all these really interesting sustainable interest infrastructure verticals designed to decarbonize our infrastructure. Uh, and that's the spaces we play in. We love it. Um, but that's kind of where our journey started. That is absolutely wild. And just so I know, ESG, what does that stand yeah, for? Yeah, sorry, I, I'm an acronym oh. guru because I just <laughs> we just live in an acronym world these days. But it stands for Environmental Sustainability and Governance. Okay, well, and like you said, you can you, weird projects are your normal projects today. You know, for example, the the types of clients and work that you may do. I saw that y'all advised Blackstone, the heavyweight giant in uh, you know venture capital, on a hundred and fifty million dollar investment in a company called Rentech yep. um, that processes wood fiber and also makes nitrogen fertilizer, yep. nitrogen fertilizer, <laughs> right? And so when we were talking, you were like, you know, there's so many different, you know, things that you don't even think about where it's like you mentioned waste um, re recycling right. and things like that. So, um, you know, how has in the journey of getting to being focused on ESG, I mean, was that let me backtrack, actually. Some of the biggest things that I think entrepreneurs have is, how do I get in front of investors? I don't know any wealthy people. It sounds like your career started right off the bat, um, working with the people, you know, working on these projects that were, you know, international and really large scale. Was that something you sought out intentionally, or did you just happen to know people that helped bring you into that world 
being around the people who who in fact do have the money. Yeah, it was a little bit of a hybrid of both. So I, I fortunate where uh, my father and some of my uh, close, you know, family friends over the years had, um, you know, had pretty decent exposure to the infrastructure investment community. It was mostly predominantly like, you know, fossil fuel power generation, a lot of stuff that was really, you know, strong in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And, you know, this movement in the early 2000s into where we are today, you know, is, is more modern relative to a lot of the legacy folks whose careers are, you know, over now and they're in retirement. But um, so we had some doors open. I also, uh, along with my partners, made a really conscious effort to just be in New York. I was in New York I can't even tell you how many times, almost every other week, it seemed like fly up there, pounding on pavement, asking, you know, hey, if you don't mind opening a door for this guy, I'd really like to get with Apollo. I heard they're working on these projects. Do you mind if you can open that door? Oh, yeah, my buddy works over there. I'll, you know, I'll get you an introduction. And it's just that compound network effect. If you just stay relentless at it, you pound the pavement, you be there, be present, take them out for lunches, do what you got to do, ask for if you can connect me with so-and-so. And before you know it, you know, one client turns to two, two turns to four, then all of a sudden you have a niche expertise in one part of the, you know, the, the structure, you know, the value chain. And then, you know, now you get known for that and then you slowly expand. And so I think it was a hybrid of some doors were open. We were very fortunate. My father and some others were able to open some doors and then just the relentless pursuit uh, of leveraging relationship building. I mean, everything from we would try to record the names of their children and send their send them birthday presents and really make them clear that like we really care and we're really doing everything in our power to make sure you realize that this isn't just a one-way relationship. It's really important that you drive value to your prospective clients as much as you're asking from them. And so we would never really ask much in the early days. We would just offer connections to them. You know, being a source of origination is really important for funds. So if you can bring them potential deals that aren't your own, hey, my friend's running a business, you might be fascinated with what you're trying to deploy capital. And so the more you can scratch their back, the more they're likely to help you out. And that was kind of the approach we took. I love that because, you know, a lot of the times we hear about like, if you don't have the ask, right? Like if you're not clear about either what you're looking for or what you hope to gain from the relationship, you know, it's the setting of expectations saying I'm in this, you know, I've always said to, to clients, I'm like, whether it's business now or five years from now, like, I hope to have a relationship with you, ask you about how things are going in your world, your career, your own family. And if we happen to do business together, great. Right. And th that's been a foundation. However, you do still have to have the ask, like you do still need to make sure that people know what you're doing. And a piece of that is like the origination piece, like you mentioned, that's mentioning, you know, these are the types of businesses and the friends that I keep that, that right. I think you should know about. Um, absolutely. So I'm curious of what, from the first five years of your business versus where you are today, has there been, you know, um, a, a ton of shifts or, you know, ways that the market has changed your your focus or is that really remained pretty true to it and you've just gotten deeper into the expertise i think it's um i think the former so we recognized pretty early i would say probably in year four we started after we had advised with probably 20 or 30 funds on many dozens of projects we started to realize there was a pretty significant gap that they uh, that existed that we were seeing amongst all of them and that was that they wanted to deploy capital. The capital is there. There are endless amounts of billions of dollars looking to pour into these sectors. The problem is, is there's a supply and demand imbalance between projects worthy of investing in and the amount of money that's there to be invested. And so we kept seeing that the funds were struggling to underwrite these projects. Um, 
they're, they're a little bit more complicated than your kind of old school fossil fuel burning generating power supply you know, power generation units or your, you know, your compressor stations and oil and gas, things that have been built for 50 years. There's no technology risk. They, they're kind of cookie cutter, if you will. But now you're into sectors where you have like organics, right? You have non-homogeneous aspects of moving parts. You have first of a kind technology risk. You have contractors building these that have never built these things before because they've never been built before. So you, you have way more risk points. And in order to get an underwriting from a fund of the magnitude of Blackstone, you have to de-risk it to the to the nature of which they are prepared to feel like they have confidence to get their capital back or hit their returns. And that's a lot more difficult in these sectors. So what we did is we launched a development as a service offering. So it was called Nexus PDS, Project Development Services, and it was our second business line. And what we did was we essentially built a team in-house that had leveraged all the knowledge that we had gained from those investors, having done their due diligence to understand, okay, now we know what you're looking for to put your money to work. Let's go help the developers themselves button up their projects so that you guys can invest in them. And so we do all of our own in-house engineering for our clients. Now we have a multidisciplinary engineering task force. We help them structure all of their contracts with their contractors, with their waste stream providers, with their offtake partners. If they're selling, you know, renewable natural gas or whatever they're selling, we help them structure those. We make sure they have credit worthy counterparties. So they're not doing, you know, you can't, if you want $200 million, you can't be selling your product to, you know, Joe's business down the street. You have to have big commercial consumers for long-term contracts. We'd help them identify the places where to build these facilities, that the power, water, and gas infrastructure was there to make sure that these could be built for the long-term and all of those things. And that really took us to another level as a company. We started being able to play the nexus, ironically enough, between the development community and the funding community. So now we're better known for helping developers get their projects to a point where they can be financed and connecting them with the finance community because we have such deep-rooted relationships. And so we play that that support mechanism on both sides. And, and we've been a big part of helping a lot more projects come to market that are that are better prepared to do so. I'm curious if you were to make up a percentage of what you think of um, projects that are being proposed versus what you actually end up advising them to to move forward with. It, what's like a... <laughs> is it, it's a low percentage, like, I'm going like to be very 10%? honest. 10%? <laughs> it's probably even less than that, to be honest with you. In fact, I can tell you that we... Um, in the fund, right? We've been around for three months now. We've looked at, I want to say about 57 projects and we're looking at pursuing one, maybe two. Um, so we're talking a pretty low percentage, but doesn't mean that those projects won't mature to a point where at some point they're worthy. Some are just too early for us. Some haven't de-risked enough. Some have an idea, uh, but nothing more than that yet. And they need to mature a little bit further. So it's not necessarily black and white per se, but it's it's a low percentage. It's It's really, really difficult to, to, to get a project that's, you know, 30, 100, $200 million of investment to a point where it's, it's worthy of investment. Because that's the types of projects, you know, in, in software and in tech, you know, traditional conversations are, um, you're still raising quite a bit of money if you're raising a million dollars or $2 million, but because of the sheer infrastructure and like physical assets that have to be involved, the projects that you're working on most likely aren't going to be, from what I understand, less than 50 million, let alone less than, you know, a hundred or 200 million. Right. Yeah. That's, okay. the, that's the key too. So it, on average, it takes about half a million for the low end ones, half a million to say $4 million to develop a project on your own dime to a point where your permanent capital can come in. That's just kind of the benchmark, right? There are some projects like a billion dollar biofuels refining process that sells aviation jet fuel to Delta Airlines. That's like 
you know, 10, 20 million dollars of development capital that's at risk before those guys, the Blackstones will come in. But for most projects in our verticals, I would say it's half a million on the very low end to probably more commonly two to three million dollars. And that's what our vehicle is designed to do. It's a different type of financial instrument. There is a lot of permanent capital there. If you do your job as a developer, there are plenty of folks who would like to give you 100, 200, 300 million dollars plus. Finding that two to three million dollars to de-risk your project so they can come in, that's the hard money to find. It's usually high net worth individuals. It's family offices, which are a hard network to get into. Um, it's really small niche boutique private equity, but generally it's really difficult to find. So we we launched this vehicle specifically to help people with that source of the capital stack. And we felt like we were in a very unique position to feel confident deploying that capital because of the nature of our parent company's ability to do diligence, those opportunities and figure out which ones are the right one to back. Absolutely. So I'm curious of what you mentioned, wealthy people and individual, you know, angel investors and, and things like that. What are the conversations like that investors are having when they think about sustainability? Like they're like, I know that it matters, but I'm not sure of how I can benefit from it. Or are they like, I know that I want to invest in this. Here's what I have. Bring me the best project. Like, I'm curious of their, their timidness for, for, you know, what these conversations look like. Yeah, I'd say a lot of the conversation because of the way things have gone over the last 10 or 20 years is, is it, is there technology risk is probably their biggest focus. Um, in the, you know, in the early 2000s and, and whatnot, we went through kind of what they called, you know, green tech 1.0, which was, there was a lot of busts, right? Kind of like the dot-com was for the web. It came back full force. Amazon survived. Many people did quite well in the long term, but we kind of had that same thing occur in the infrastructure, green infrastructure sector. And we're kind of in 2.0 now. So we're seeing a combination of the technologies have improved. There's more proven technologies coupled with limited partners, the LPs that invest into these GPs that put this money to work, the, the general partners. Um, they almost don't have a choice now. Those pension funds, the insurance funds, they have mandates to a high degree now to only put money to work. And you've probably seen, like you mentioned, Blackstone, right? Uh, Larry Fink basically said, like, we're not investing in anything that has a, a major carbon footprint anymore. So I think the market and the money markets have shifted so far that the uh, the constraints are more about finding the ones that will work than, than you know, the hesitation of actually deploying into these sectors. Um, if the technologies continue to emerge and more development teams become more and more mature and the winners start to reveal themselves over the coming years, honestly, I'd be surprised if you don't see trillions of dollars pouring into these. Wow. Well, and like you mentioned, you're having to assess a ton of risk and given the types of projects, there's a lot higher levels of risks. A lot of that comes down to trust um, and, and building trust. And so I'm curious of what it takes for building trust with the investor, like how much of the, the trust is they're going to trust the human, they're going to trust the founder, the original, you know, uh, project developers, I think is would be right versus are they going to trust the report? The, right. the paperwork that you're putting in front of them saying, we've checked it out. Here's the analytics. Like what's their, what do you feel like they're relying on gut wise? That's actually a really good question because I think you actually um, basically hit the nail on the head of what has happened over the same. So green tech 1.0 that I mentioned that was not very successful was actually because people were relying on the reports and not necessarily you know, going too far beyond that. I think what's happened is people recognize that reports generally are worth the paper they're written on. I mean, they're, 
you know, they're, they can have skewed opinions. The opinions aren't necessarily as fine tuned because there's too much liability if you say too much stuff. And so the really that what's happened now is the market is moving more toward less diligence, the team, who's your owner's engineer, who's your contractor? Have they built something like this before? Are they pretty cool? It's really more about assessing the major stakeholders in the project. And, you know, if a project, if a report says it's great, you know, they will still hire confirmatory due diligence agents. They, they're diving into the weeds of the details far more than they used to. So reports are important. You know, we write our reports, we say recommendations. I think one thing that separates us a little bit is we're more known for exactly what you described, telling the truth. We will tell people if the project is kind of crap. <laughs> and, and some people are afraid to say that because, you know, like, you know, getting sued or if the developer says that's not true and then you get in arguments. But the reality is, is um, there's a desperate need for a little bit more transparency in these sectors and what we do, people to just kind of tell it how it is. It doesn't mean you can't fix the problems, but the, the straightforwardness, the transparency is kind of what our brand is known for. Uh, and so, our, you know, I always like to say by the time our reports are issued, our clients already know what it says. Okay, I have to take a minute to pause here because guess what? We have a season three of Local and Thriving headed your way this year. I am so excited to continue bringing you a holistic perspective on the resources and the VFW ecosystem for the local and small business economy. So we're going to continue to feature local business owners, community leaders, and subject matter experts. Visit localandthriving.com for more info. That's an important aspect of it for sure. So I'm glad you touched on that because that was something that, you know, I think we, if you've only watched Shark Tank and that's your only exposure to, um, you know, investor and how investors and how they think through things, deciding on whether to invest, a lot of the times they talk about, it's a matter of the person, the founder, um, the, the passion that yeah. is there knowing how hard are you going to work <laughs> if I, if I provide the money. Absolutely. So, um, we touched on it before, just about the different types of projects that you work on. And I feel like clean tech, climate change, carbon footprint, sustainability, these are key words that we hear about in the media. But I would love for you to, to maybe touch on some of the unique projects that are actually happening related to that. Like if we're talking about reducing carbon footprint, what does that mean? Or what's an interesting project that you that people would be surprised to hear about that's that's happening? Yeah, there's some really fascinating ones. So I'll try to highlight those ones because they're more interesting. But um, I would say generally one of the biggest uh, opportunities that we spend a lot of time on is uh, renewable fuels. And so what's happening is this birth of the circular economy, right? Is somebody's waste is somebody else's gold now is really how it's looked at, right? Waste streams, I don't think a lot of people realize, but whether it's dairy manure, hog manure, poultry litter, human waste, um, you know, uh, even the trash that gets thrown out, uh, like organics, things like that, it has a massive amount of energy in it, right? Um, and there's, there's, there's abundance amount of energy there. Well, what we've been doing historically is digging a giant hole, throwing our trash in it and covering it up. And that's A, not sustainable and B, it's a waste. Um, so what's happening now is, is one area we work in a lot that we really enjoy is um, we partner up with dairy farmers. We go and build these systems called anaerobic digestion facilities. And they're basically big, um, um, big domes, if you think of it that way, that essentially take the cow manure, uh, dairy manure inside of it, uh, goes through a process which essentially creates something called biogas. Uh, basically, you have a lot of microbes that are like essentially eating the waste stream and they're creating biogas. 
And this biogas gets siphoned out of the system through what's called a gas upgrader. And we inject essentially the equivalent of pipeline quality renewable natural gas that was made from dairy waste that would normally either get spread unnecessarily to a large area or most likely going to, uh, to a landfill. Uh, and creating renewable fuels and the likes of Chevron and Exxon, all the big oil and gas majors are buying this. Um, the same is made, the same is from municipal solid waste, from various different trash sources. There's advanced recycling facilities. So we're, but people are using artificial intelligence now, as well as advanced, um, advanced uh, manufacturing techniques to essentially sort and separate various different types of waste streams, whether that's plastics, um, you know, that's um, organics, banana peels, all those things, and then converting those waste streams into their energy sources. And once you create this biogas I referenced, you can actually take that to hydrogen production, to renewable fuels, to aviation jet fuel. There's airlines that are just flying on stuff that's made from your waste, believe it or not. And if that scares the crap out of you, go look it up because you might be on a plane that where your fuel is made from somebody's waste. Um, yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, we're even taking waste streams and we're, um, we're making something called black soldier fly larvae, right? It's a process where you use an organic process to essentially feed bugs, uh, essentially the waste streams and they turn into black soldier fly larvae and you dry them and you use them for really high protein, natural organic animal feed. Um, so, you know, there's just an amazing amounts, but it all kind of hinders on this transition, this trans waste transformation that's occurring all around the country and quite frankly, the world where waste streams are now being used to create an unparalleled amount of products, whether that's plastic replacements, fuels, uh, bugs, and many other things. And so you're seeing a really big revolution because there's plenty of waste. So there's, that gives you the idea of how much this can scale because there are plenty of places to find waste streams. Was it around waste that you had mentioned in one of our prior conversations where it really disrupted the supply chain from the farmer having to pay someone to come and pick something up from them versus now they're actually getting paid to do that? Was it around waste or something different? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So it's called tip fees. So what normally happens is when you want to take a waste stream, um, when you want to take a waste stream to a landfill, they charge you on a per ton basis. So if you have 50 tons of waste, they'll charge you 60, 80, 40, depending on where you're in the country, dollars per ton. So if you're a dairy farm or you're a waste, you know, waste, per, you know, even like restaurants who, you know, whenever they build up those grease traps, those have to be empty. That stuff, they pay a lot of money to have that waste taken to a landfill. Well, imagine this type of environment where you can approach a dairy farmer or a company that's producing a ton of waste and say, hey, by the way, we're going to put a facility right next door to your waste producing facility. We're going to take all that waste. You're not going to have to pay anymore to get rid of it. Oh, and we're also going to give you upside in the products that we're producing. So you're transforming what is a huge cost center for a lot of businesses into a revenue center. So it's it's massive benefit to so many different um, so many different waste producers, which is honestly, just about everybody from cabinet makers with, you know, wood weight. I mean, it, it goes on and on. I'm curious if someone's listening right now and they're an entrepreneur, they've already maybe had ideas that they're going after, but based on the conversation here, they're like, wait a second, would there be, do you feel like there's an opportunity for a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs to step into that collector yeah. role? being able to, to start a business where they're the ones retrieving a lot of this waste. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I've been talking to a few people lately that have that exact idea, but you know, there's traditionally you have kind of like waste management, you have Republic waste haulers that are the big, you know, they put your trash out front every week and they come and collect it. 
But for example, I'm talking to a company I'll rename Undisclosed, but they're trying to figure out how can we collect all these Amazon boxes that people have in real time and, and go through a process of converting those Amazon boxes either into reusable packaging, which is an interesting approach, or, you know, take the, uh, the energy density that exists, which is little less than most things, but you could reuse those packages, reform them into new packages, right? And people would just give those things to you for free. Um, and so same thing, we're talking to a company that's trying to figure out how to take, um, you know, cat and dog litter from various different dog parks and stuff. What can we do with that? So yeah, absolutely. If you have a, a way to aggregate waste streams, uh, at a pretty large scale in particular, there's definitely ways to, to transform that into a business. My apartment doesn't even have a recycling program. Okay. I mean, and I watched a documentary. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I watched a documentary um, probably a couple of months ago now, and it was very concerning. Um, so what you're, you're saying right now is giving me a little bit of hope that there's solutions being found because that what was concerning about it was that, you know, first world countries are shipping our, you know, our trash and our waste um, and our recycled materials to um, you know, third world countries and just yep. saying it's your problem now. And then it's the, the methane gas from yep. those piles is then affecting their pollution levels and stuff like that. So I just remember watching that and being really impacted and just That's like, exactly right. okay, so you're telling me, even if I do recycle, it's still not going anywhere, still not doing anything good. Yeah. As human beings, we have, unfortunately just inherently have a little bit of an out of sight, out of mind, just kind of infrastructure built within us, right? So you throw your trash out, you put it in the trash, somebody comes and takes it. That's the end of your thought process around that. But it's either going to a landfill where it's going to sit, create, you know, with methane leaking for a long time, or it's not getting properly recycled. So it ends up in our oceans. Like, so I think it all starts with the individual, right? And making, and we're, we're, you know, a bit of a society that's moved into a convenience society, right? We've, like things delivered to us. We don't like to necessarily have to do more than necessary. And there's a lot of technology giving birth to convenience, right? So I think what you'll see over and a lot of entrepreneurs can, can take out of this is if you can make something convenient that was normally not convenient or equally as convenient, but actually has a sustainability angle. Like if you could figure out how to take people's Amazon boxes or trash away cost effectively and do something with it and not make it any harder. If I have to, or you have to get up, take all your Amazon boxes and drive 10 miles down the road, you're just going to throw them in your, in your recycle bin and move on. So I think you've got to think about the way that people practically do things today and build an entrepreneurial mentality around how do I make this as easy as the customer is the thing that they're already doing with that waste stream. And if you can figure that out, you're in great place. Well, in Starting from the, the the understanding that climate change is something that needs to be very seriously addressed, um, you know, worldwide, and we have these climate goals um, from, you know, uh, not the UN, but the the, the 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 international relations, we've got climate goals, right? Yeah. What are some of the industries that are holding us back that, that are either clearly not committed or say that they are, but clearly aren't actually taking the action to, to, to back that up? Yeah, I think that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize. And I'll shamelessly plug, I actually wrote a piece of content that was posted through our Nexus PMG uh, LinkedIn and social media platform where we actually, I wrote a little bit about like the challenge associated with climate change to kind of help people understand how diverse climate change is in and of itself, right? You have a significant portion of, uh, of emissions coming from agriculture, right? So the raising of livestock and, and vegetables and things is a huge component. Right. So you've got companies that are creating artificial meats to help replace and you've got more vegetarians and vegans, play, you know, being active. But even within those boundaries, right, just 
maybe eat one less or two less meat meals a week. You don't necessarily have to be a vegan or vegetarian necessarily to make an impact. Just be mindful of the little things like, you know what, maybe I'll eat vegetarian once a week or twice a week. Those little things make huge impacts. So agriculture is one that's really difficult because it's a consumer driven. If people keep eating those things, they're going to keep being you know raised uh, accordingly. Then you've got manufacturing. That's a tough one, right? Um, for example, people don't probably realize steel make, making of steel and cement is over 12% of our global emissions, just those two things, right? So there's a lot of technologies trying to figure out how to do two things. One, make how do you make that process that's really carbon intensive, less intensive through technology, but also carbon capture technology. How do we actually take what's being produced and do something with it? Uh, and so there's a lot of carbon capture uh, companies emerging that have figured out how to capture the carbon at the back end of these huge uh, carbon CO2 producing facilities, capture it, store it underground, store it in salt domes, convert it into other byproducts. Um, so that's another area. And then you've got obviously just traditional transportation. That's the one that commonly gets referred to cars, planes, automobiles, you name it. Uh, I think electric vehicles coupled with solar and wind power is starting to emerge. I have probably the highest degree of confidence that that's going to keep accelerating and that one will be one of our fastest areas of decarbonization. And then one other area is, is like home heating, cooling and refrigeration, I think is like 7% of our global emissions. So being mindful of, uh, you know, the next time you buy a new home or the next time you buy a new fridge or the next time you buy a system, really be mindful about buying something that reduces the carbon footprint. There's a lot of stuff there, but it's a capital upgrade cost. You're not just going to go replace your AC unit just with, you know, it's expensive until it breaks. But when it does break or when you have to move into a new house, or if you're building a home, be mindful of these things. So those are some of the areas where we have to make the dent and it's, it's pretty diverse. Awesome. Thank you for the breakdown. Um, cause that, yeah, that's like you said, it's just about mindful and taking, you know, snackable bite-sized changes can, can be, um, powerful in and of itself. What are some of the biggest, um, demands or needs that you feel like maybe you saw a shift through COVID times? Like ha has this conversation shifted? Have there been any different demands coming from the, the last year? Yeah. I, surprisingly, the we'll call it the green revolution actually accelerated during this timeline. I mean, I won't be, I'll be very honest. I mean, it's pretty nervous when COVID hit about our business, like, okay, are people going to keep deploying capital? Or is there too much uncertainty, whether these make sense? But I think the movement is so, is so ignorant to anything else because it kind of has to be, it's an overarching systemic risk to our, you know, to our societies, to our, to the human race that like everybody's in the same boat. In fact, I was talking to my friend yesterday, trying to think of like, what is the, where is, where, where have we ever had in history, something to this magnitude where every human being is in the same boat against a risk, right? COVID is probably one of the closer ones you can think of, but even that's a little bit different how people want to treat. It. I mean, we all have to figure this out and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so, you know, there's just an inherent, um, I think there's an inherent reality that's been accepted. So we have seen the acceleration, um, interesting, you know, fact is, you know, around 51 billion tons of CO2 equivalent, they call it, because there's other, there's other uh, uh, greenhouse gases like methane and nitrous oxide. So they call it equivalent to kind of wrap all the different types of gases into one, uh, about 51 billion tons a year. It's estimated that in 2020, during COVID, it was about 47 to 48 billion. So even with slowing of the entire global economy, we only reduced emissions by less than 5%. And that's because of the diversity I mentioned, right? Manufacturing still stayed up. People kept eating meat. Like it's not just transportation, I think is what people have to know. So there's a work to do for sure, but that's why there's so much 
effort here because people are realizing the magnitude of what we're facing. Yeah. At first, when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, sweet, a drop, you know, that's good. And then you're like, just five. I'm like, oh, right, right. That doesn't, that's not. <laughs> well, if you consider our climate goals are by, by 2050, we have to be at net zero. So we have to go, if we dropped 4 billion tons with COVID, we have to do like 15 times better than what COVID shut us down in about, you know, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. And years. if we're getting back, to, if we're, if we're getting back to normal, so to say, uh, is that number just going to go right back up? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult conversation to have. And I think that's what we've learned over the, over the last couple of years in particular is it's not an easy conversation. It's not a conversation people feel comfortable with those with young children, you know, they, they don't want to necessarily think about what their children might have to go through if things don't get better. So it's not an easy conversation to have. It's not an easy topic, um, you know, to, to want to talk about or to digest. But the reality is, is we have a, we have a risk in front of us. We understand that risk and it's time to act. And I think we're seeing action. I think the conversation has shifted more about, are we going to take the action to, are we going to take the action fast enough? Okay. All right. Well, and I want to shift a little bit to talk about just the, the actual starting of the business and your, your story, you know, since 2013, um, starting that, have there been any resource, you know, business resources, business service organizations, um, anything like that, that you felt like has been helpful or that you leaned on. And a lot of people have said, I, I really didn't, but I wish I had. So in some cases, this might be in reflection, um, knowing what all is available. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, my easiest answer to that is I actually think the people that helped us the most were the people that we built relationships with early that were willing to open doors because they could tell our relationships were genuine. So I wouldn't say we necessarily had it with what we do a specific, you know, uh, research organization or a specific third party that we partnered with that helped us scale to that degree. It was building relationships with private equity fund managers, taking them out to dinner and just say, and, and getting them to be aware, like, Hey, you know, it's worth helping us. It's worth opening doors. We're doing impactful things here. We're going to help you not just as an advisor, but we're going to open doors for you. We're going to be connected to this community that you can't, you're not on the front lines the same way we are. You have a lot of people come to you, but we can tell you what's going to work. We can tell you. So, you know, invest in us and we'll invest in you. So I would say the number one thing there was, like I mentioned earlier, is make sure I've always found if you deliver value to people that aren't even a client yet, you almost don't even have to ask them for anything. If you do it the right way, they will scratch your back. Most people are genuinely good when it comes to business reciprocity, if you will. So just going out of your way to try to find to deliver value, don't necessarily ask for something in return. And it's amazing how many doors open up. And I think that's what we learned early on that worked really well, which was kind of our version of, you know, what, what helped us and what opened doors and was our network. So, I, th I think a lot of people may struggle because like in the tech industry, we've got user groups specific to every language. You've got a Vue.js group, yeah. a React.js group. Um, is there like an, an ESG organization, you know, or um, any types of, you know, committees like, right, other than going on LinkedIn or researching someone and finding them and trying to set a meeting? Like, are there specific rooms that you know of now that even if they just have an annual conference that might be worth attending? Yeah, they're very industry specific. But what I will say, and I, I'm, maybe you're on there, Bree, but um, I've actually been pretty impressed with the burst of Clubhouse, the app that's, you know, very audio driven. Yeah, it's been great. There are sustainability rooms and uh, groups. We have one of our own, again, shameless plug, the circular economy room. There are a lot of amazing conversations. And I would say in today's environment, 
it's the modern equivalent now that's being birthed of going to trade shows and going to conferences. So I would say those that are interested, I think still have to have an iPhone at this point, but uh, I think that's changing here shortly, but getting on to clubhouse, if you're interested in learning and participating in just, just search for the keyword sustainability and there's endless amazing conversations going on about saving our oceans. If you're interested in that, what's happening in the, you know, in the Amazon, if you're interested in that, if you want to talk about technology, if you want to talk about how carbon pricing and the political, world. I mean, there's a, flour- a flourishing conversation taking place. So that would be my recommendation of a place to go. I'm going to say plus 50, plus 50. I mean, like I, uh, it's definitely something that hooks you and I've spent a, quite a bit of time on there, but I think I'm so glad that you, that you mentioned that because it's been in all the conversations that I've been having, because especially if you've got intentional goals that you want to meet for me, it was expanding internationally, um, and, and making those connections. And it was like, well, you couldn't do that before because a, I'm really ingrained here in the DFW community, but also what do you do? Just send a LinkedIn message. Like I want to move to New Zealand in the future. I have been able to connect with so many Kiwis yeah, yeah. <laughs> through through Clubhouse and been a part of their their rooms to just understand how they do business, hear them talk, hear their culture, but then also connect directly with business owners who could use my services. I, it happened within 72 hours. I was like, wait a second, I could use it this way. Went and sought out people, followed them, joined clubs. 72 hours later, I ended up with a room with three business owners who, who could use my services. And I was like, oh my God, you know? Um, yeah. It's great learning. It's great networking. It's, it's, it's a really clever platform. Um, you know, it takes, again, it's like taking conferencing concept and putting it on a virtual platform. It's really easy to use. You can moderate. I mean, it's just, it's a great platform to learn. Uh, and there are just so many interesting conversations and people that you, you, it'd be too hard to just, even without COVID, just, just jump in and pay a lot of money, quite frankly, to go to conferences. I mean, there's, there's, you know, conferences for biomass, there's car conferences for the renewable fuels, for aviation fuels, for, um, you know, for re- uh, recycling. There's, they're all kind of siloed because they're all just their unique challenges and they're not necessarily all overlap, but getting onto something like Clubhouse, um, you know, and, and then obviously um, like at the very highest level, if people are interested in understanding the climate change movement at a highest level, the IPCC, which I'm probably going to get this wrong. I think it's the International Panel of Climate Change. That's like the governing body. They're the ones that release the, the reports that people weigh in the most, where the scientists are collectively saying what we need to do, when we need to do it by. But that's what kind of sets the foundation. And then all these conversations are setting the foundation for how to fix the problem. Well, um, you said shameless plug. So I'm going to say shamelessly. I hope I can woo you into moderating a room together because I've done that after the podcast. I've done that when we had one of our other subject matter experts for an episode on influencer marketing. And so we did an after the podcast conversation with other people that were in that space. And it turned out to be a really great room and and conversation. So yes, I'll make sure to join the club. Um, so there's two questions that I love to ask everybody. And so one of them is if, you know, and now I feel like the, the number amount that I'm about to say is like chump change based on everything you're working on. But if let's say you're given $5 million tomorrow to go and start a new business that can't be related to, to Nexus PMG or Nexus dev, what would it be in? Um, and, and, you know, what would you do with it? I think this might be a little related, so it might be cheating, but I am, I, so I just bought a property a year and a half ago with my wife and we're building our own kind of little sustainable world up on that property. It's about 10 acres. And I'm really personally fascinated in, in lots of different subjects, but 
Um, I love the concept of, of growing my own food sustainably. Um, and so one thing that I would be really fascinating is actually what they call vertical growing. So there's maybe you've seen that. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that sector where people are like buying old like commercial buildings and figuring out how to do like indoor farming and growing that as a sector. I just personally am very, I want to almost like be a botanist. It's as weird as that is. I don't know how, but I knew you were going to say that. I literally... <laughs> I was thinking he's gonna, awesome. say vert- he's gonna say vertical gardening. I knew it. <laughs> I love it. I think, and I like I said, it's a little bit cheating because you know it is a little bit of overlap because the infrastructure. But that's an area where I just, I just, I find I want to do that myself personally. I'm gonna build some like vegetable garden beds and things up on our property. Uh, we're gonna do, you know, look at putting in, uh, you know, our own battery storage and solar for powering our property and our barn and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's probably where I would spend. I also love to write. Uh, so I would, I, I think I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book, but I think in my future years, I think being an author will probably be in my future as well. So I think writing content for people is a really good way to demonstrate your subject matter expertise. You got to stick with it, but growing an audience of something you're good at, and then you can just build a platform off of that. You know, listen, I can barely keep a peace lily alive here in my apartment. It is brutal. So I, uh, I love the idea of, um, of being able to grow my own food, but I'm just like, we, we got some work to do. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I got a long way to go too. I'm with you. My, my partner Roshan, he's fantastic. He has his own composting setup, like at his home where he has his kids separately compost, you know, like put their organics in a separate trash can then they go compost out in the backyard together and he's teaching his kids how to do that then they use that for fertilizer they're growing their own tomatoes and stuff but it's really great for a lot of people who want to interact with their children in a completely different way right historically we're a very sports-centric culture we toss the baseball out in the garden we throw the football but there's a whole another aspect of like working you know working uh in the backyard of the children to grow things to compost to teach these valuable lessons because it really is going to be the next generations that come that need to understand this to even a greater degree and so if you take that time it can be fun while at the same time uh you know interesting for uh for children it's it's a good way to kind of co- combine the two well i can be proof to roshan that um it pays off because my parents did just that i grew up um out in dripping springs and we um that the house that we had bought my parents had bought um had a garden and it had a compost pile already there so that it just absolutely became a natural part of what we did and um, like you said tomatoes and we had strawberries and um, some other things that I I now remember my mom was like yeah didn't you know all that all of that was um, fresh and I was like I just remember tomatoes and at the time I hated tomatoes so I wasn't that into it but I do remember (laughs) the composting um, and it definitely impacted me unless a lasting memory for sure yeah so um, and then one of the other questions, I think you've already kind of touched on it, but maybe I'll just have you try to hone in on somebody here in the DFW market. I like to ask if there's one resource or maybe one person, you know, if someone is moving to the Dallas Fort Worth area and relocating their business or starting a business here, somebody to get plugged into or a resource to leverage who comes to mind besides yourself and your amazing team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I have a good friend named Paxton Kelso. Paxton's probably going to love me for uh, shouting him out because he's going to get phone calls now. But uh, Paxton is a great guy. He is um, a senior, a senior kind of business development relationship manager, if you will. 
uh, at Aon, the insurance company. They have a, a pretty big branch here, but he's just, the insurance guys have really, really deep networks into so many people because everybody needs insurance for something. All these facilities I'm talking about building have to have insurance. Everybody's house has to have insurance. Insurance is a product that pretty much everyone adopts. And he's just a really phenomenal person. He's opened up a tremendous amount of doors for me. Um, he's a really friendly person. He, he genuinely loves to interact with other people. Um, he's interested in all these topics, but he's, he's been a big influence in terms of just, uh, bouncing ideas off of, um, and then, uh, my partner, I'll be honest, my partner Roshan, um, he is just really well connected. He sits on the boards of a couple of the, uh, private equity firms here, like the tech venture firms. He's been involved in the Dallas startup week. Um, he's with mock, he's on the board of mockingbird ventures or was, um, so he's really well connected and he led our technology division. So I know there's a lot, you probably have a large tech audience too. So, you know, there's a lot of folks, we have our own app that we built on the Google play and iTunes store for project management. So he has a deep rooted connection into that industry as well. And he likes to connect with people. He's a big people person. So those are the two guys that, uh, have been great for me. Perfect. I love it. That is great. And I know that you, um, you all have your, your podcast bigger than, uh, bigger than us podcast um, that is also on Apple Podcasts and and all of the available platforms. So I'm curious of if someone's going to go and check that out. Is there an episode that you recommend people to start with or a certain guest that stood out to you? Yeah, actually, recently, um, I'm going to butcher her last name. So I might not even try to say it, but it's uh, the first name. I think it was two episodes ago. It's Graziella. She's Argentinian born and she runs a business uh, probably it's backed by Bill Gates Ventures, and it's the only business that I'm aware of that's doing like trying to really at large scale do direct air carbon capture. So they're literally pulling the existing air in the atmosphere, not carbon off the back of a exist like a process it's emitting, but just out of the pure air and capturing it and turning it into various different products and injecting in the ground, etc. Um, but she just was at, she has two PhDs from Harvard and Yale, I think it was. She actually wrote the policy that defined essentially carbon tax all around the world. She was the head of, you know, the um, the international uh, climate change committee. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. And her episode was really riveting and fascinating, especially for me. But she goes to a really great job of kind of highlighting the challenges we have, some of the really interesting things they're doing at the political level well. But I really enjoyed her episode. But there really is a lot of them. The host, Raj Daniels, I know you know, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, he's really good at getting the best out of people. Um, and then for those interested, like I mentioned, we're really passionate about that's an educational um, platform for our, for, you know, for us to, to use for our audience. But also we just launched a, uh, a YouTube's kids channel called Mira and Nexi. So we created a, uh, two characters, one's an alien and one's a young female engineer, and they are going around trying to solve the challenges that we've described. Uh, and so we're doing animated videos for children to teach basically science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics steam uh, through that platform, leveraging these two characters. And then we hired a really uh, talented educator who's doing all the narration and writing all the scripts. So we're going to be launching that. We had our first one come out and we got our second one coming out next month. And we're going to be building upon that for the educational platform. That is awesome. Definitely. I will have to check that out and share with all of my friends um, because they are, you know, now at least, you know, my close network of friends is having, you know, they've got two-year-olds and starting to have those conversations and try to, yep. to seep in the books and stuff like that, that, that start. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> it's designed for like kindergarten to fifth grade. So it's, you know, it's like, what are our experiments and why are they important? And, you know, we have animated, you know, emotion figures of Newton and why the apple dropped from the tree and what the importance is. And then we 
the our educator at the very end gives uh, like experiments for the parents to do with their uh, with their children that take those topics that were taught and how to do like experiments like the old volcano one that everybody knows and things like that. So I think it'll be really fun for uh, for parents to to interact with their children while getting an opportunity to kind of teach them about the importance of sustainability. That is awesome. I absolutely love that y'all are doing that. So that is amazing. I will make sure to to check that out and share it as well. And so do y'all have anything coming up over the next like month or two that people should know about or, or get plugged into or maybe be aware of? Yeah, I would say that is a big one. We just launched that, I think last week. So that's a big one. Um, we have uh, we have some um, some announcements coming out as a business around some restructuring that we think is really exciting. We've we've um, put some some of our long term uh, employees into some really critical strategic high growth positions. So you'll see some stuff on our business in terms of reshaping it a little bit. So we're going to be making uh, exposing that here. Uh, and then uh, we have some additional um, podcast episodes that we, we do weekly that are coming out that with some really fascinating people on some really innovative technologies in these landscapes. So, um, yeah, lots of there's always lots of movement within our uh, our framework. But I would say those are the, the three pillars to keep an eye on. And I forgot to mention when we were talking about vertical um, gardening or farming, uh, one of the earlier episodes with Trey Bowles, he also mentioned when I asked him the $5 million question um, of what he was going to do, he mentioned that. So if you're not already talking with him, uh, it sounds like he's in those types of conversations as well. So that, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's amazing. There's just, there's so much to do that you could pick any path and, and spend your whole life dedicated to it. I mean, there's so many opportunities whether it's from a business or even just a personal endeavor perspective to, uh, you know, to leverage this kind of movement. And, and it's something that you can be proud of, which is pretty amazing, right? You can create a business that you're like truly generally passionate about and proud of. And, you know, that's not easy for everyone to say, like, you know, a lot of people work or have businesses or work for companies because, you know, stable jobs and understand all that stable jobs, but there's opportunities where you can find your passion, still make good money, still have, make a good living, still do your part, but you, there, it's all starting to merge together now where these passion projects and these passion businesses that are really necessary to move the needle here in, in some of our battles and uphill battles can be quite profitable at the same time. And they don't have to be distinctly different from one another. I mean, there's such a shift going on between traditional careers, traditional industries versus this really large area of opportunity and new supply chains, um, you know, new new business that not only um, should happen, but needs to happen, like you said, in order to hit some of these goals. So from the government level to the the insurance providers and the the funders, they're incentivized, right. like they, they seem to have that commitment to actually making the change. So, um, but yeah, definitely an industry that has to have your T's crossed and I's dotted. It sounds Absolutely. Like. Yeah. It's not exactly uh, <laughs> down the fairway per se, but you know, you gotta, you gotta do your due diligence and you gotta have a really good, um, you know, risk mitigation strategy around those components, but it's not impossible. I mean, it's not to say yeah, that you yeah. can't, I mean, people are doing it all over the world. It's just, you really have to be disciplined. You can't just uh, jump both feet in and expect that the outcome will go just because there is money on the sidelines ready to pour in. You, it's still, you're still going to have to cross those hurdles. 
Um, so in our last few minutes here, because I know we didn't get to talk about it, but before all your career and things like that, I think you mentioned time in like the Amazon or like, was it some, was this some of your early travels, like before college or after college? No, it was my first few international gigs when I worked for one of the world's largest engineering construction firms. And one of my first international assignments is I lived in the South Gobi desert of Mongolia. Uh, and so I lived in a yurt. And it was basically a glorified tent uh, with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. Uh, and basically in the winter, it was minus 55 degrees Celsius, which was brutal. I was wearing like camel fur, like trying to stay warm. Uh, yeah, it was pretty wild. Like, you know, you would, uh, you go, to, we were building a, a, a golden copper mining facility out in the desert. And I mean, literally out in the desert. I mean, a six hour Kamaz bus ride and some, even the early people that were on the job had to take a camel the final hurdle of the way. Uh, there was wild horses everywhere. I mean, it was just literally as remote as it gets. I mean, you're not dramatically far from the Russian Siberian border. So very cold, very remote, ate a lot of very interesting foods, many of which people probably wouldn't want to hear about. Uh, then I went to Saudi Arabia and spent uh, years there and lived in the desert on the other end of the spectrum. So it was 100 million degrees hot instead of a, you know, minus 50. Uh, so I was uh, for many years. And then what was nice is on between rotations, because when you work overseas on those type of assignments, you work like eight weeks straight, seven days a week, and then they give you 10, 12, 14 days off. So my buddies and I got to travel on those to, I think, over 50 countries and probably over 100 cities. So I got was really fortunate to see a lot of the world, experience a lot of cultures, eat a lot of different foods, network with a lot of different people. And it really shaped who I am. And uh, it makes me more grounded, I think, and recognizing kind of, you know, what I have, but also just you know, how global all of this stuff that we work on and what I work on really is. It's easy to just out of sight, out of mind, just think America. But, you know, there's a lot of nations that are going to suffer from, you know, the consequences of these things like Bangladesh and like the, the Netherlands, which is the lowest elevation in the world, just all these different places. And so when we make these decisions, it's not just impacting us, it's impacting the world. Well, you mentioned the food, the travel and things like that. There's also some life endangering moments. Like I'm sure there was no doubt some moments where you're like, this is suspect. This is very suspicious. Oh, jumping <laughs> off of the, Vic me and Paul Hammond, my other co-founder jumped off the Victoria Falls bridge between Zimbabwe and Zambia. That was about as suspect as I think it gets. <laughs> <laughs> and that was only- I had like a towel. I had like a towel wrapped around my leg as like the, as the basis for streaming, like tying the bungee cord. It was uh, very interesting. Oh my gosh. Your wife was like, that, that's either a story where you weren't together at that yeah. point. So she was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. We did some wild that's stuff, what... ate some wild foods. Um, yeah. There, I mean, that's a, uh, that's a whole nother podcast episode around some yeah. of the insanity that ensued in our travels, but, uh, but it was fun. We experienced a lot of awesome things. That is very cool. I am incredibly jealous. One of my first um, trips over um, to London and Ireland was supposed to be in May of last year. So obviously that was canceled. So I am definitely anxious to um, be fully vaccinated and also just get to a place where we can feel comfortable and accepted into other countries because I have a yeah. feeling Americans might be um, labeled. It'll be yeah, a stamped yeah. across well, my you, forehead. <laughs> when you do go, let me know because I was born in England. My whole family's there and I do a lot of business and Ireland. So I know some good spots to go. 
Okay. Especially if you do a lot of business in Ireland. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm really just trying to, to understand those landscapes and connecting those communities more and more. So yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Well, again, we probably have so much more we could talk about, but thank you so much for the time today to be able to get into a lot of this. Cause I know it was enlightening for me and, and hopefully for others who aren't as familiar with what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it. I really, I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you inviting me on. Um, hope your audience enjoyed some of the conversation and yeah. I'll be keeping up with you and uh, let's do something on Clubhouse soon. Yes. I love it. That's fantastic. Thank you. All right, Brie. Talk to you later. All right. That's it for the show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. What's something you're taking away from the conversation? We want to hear about it. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, our private Facebook group, or the website is localandthriving.com. If there's someone that we need to have on the show, someone whose voice deserves to be heard, and they're a business owner, community builder, or a subject matter expert, please let us know. And if there's someone interested in sponsoring this show, I mean, please do get in touch. (laughs) Our email is localandthriving at gmail.com. Thank you again so much. Let's go be a force for good.